You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. you to take out your own copy of God's Word and find the book of Judges, book of Judges chapter 3. You can begin to head there, the last verse of Judges 3, verse 31. As you're on your way there, I had a couple pictures turned in last week. We were on the story of Ehud, or as Weston put it, lefty killed hefty. So, uh, yeah. I think the pictures were pretty good. They're up in the back. They weren't too graphic, but it was that's what we read about. Knives, daggers, two-edged swords, right? And and such. So there he is. There's the hood and the king and the king is dying. I love the Xs over the eyes. There's one more picture. Now the king's we think he's on the latrine, at least the servants do, and they're asking, I won't read all the details. It stinks in there. What do you have to eat? Um maybe a chili dog Weston thinks. <laughs> so. Okay. Who knows? That's where they came from. Chili dogs from the Moabites. We're still dealing with that curse, aren't we? So, okay. Thank you, Weston. All right. Judges chapter 3, verse 31. We went from a lot of verses last week to one. There is certainly less detail here, excruciatingly less detail, only a bit. But let's read it. It's God's Word. And then look into it. So Judges chapter 3, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Let's pray again. Father, would you again be gracious and bless our time together. You've already blessed our morning to worship together and the sound of your praise echoing in this, in this room with the saints. The praise is just a foretaste of what heaven will be like to endlessly praise you, not in dull repetition, but in joy forever in your presence. Lord, we pray for a taste of that joy as we look at one verse in Judges 3. May your Spirit reveal what your Spirit's already written to our hearts. We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One author, writer, commentator that I quote from often, Dale Ralph Davis, he writes this about this account of Shamgar. He says, Though scholars have recently lavished some attention on Shamgar, his name is hardly a household word among Christians. He says, Well, who, who would know about you if your life were reduced to one sentence? Shamgar has been passed over in the church year and hence doomed to oblivion. After all, who ever heard of a Saint Shamgar and All Angels Day? Davis has a point, doesn't he, in what he, in what he said here. And you, you might find in a children's Bible storybook the story of Samson or David and Goliath, but probably not going to find the story of Shamgar there. So the question is, do you... You stop here with just one verse, just such a short account. Do you, do you move on, tie it to Ehud, you know, and by the way, there was Shamgar. What do you do with this? Does this make a sermon here? And the answer is absolutely, yes. It's one verse, of course. There it is. And we're going to just dive into this and hopefully feast on a meal of God's Word, even if it's just one 
sentence here because that's what it is. It's God's Word, isn't it? Well, because of how short the text is, I'm just going to ask five questions of the text. We'll kind of go through these in order. So here's the questions, maybe, that come to your mind as we just look and, and look on this one section. Here's the questions. Number one, who was Shamgar? Who's the son of Anat? That's question number one. Anything? Who's Shamgar? Who were, and then, in response, who's the, who are the Philistines? That's question two. Three, hopefully, maybe you're asking, what is an ox goad? Number four, question four, how did Shamgar kill 600 of the Philistines? How did that happen? And then number five, we're going to ask what's absent here? What's missing and why is it significant? What's absent? Why is that significant? So first, who's, who is Shamgar, son of Anat? Short answer, no one's all too sure. And we could move on to the next question, but, that, but we'll look at it. His, it seems that his name is not of Hebrew origin. He's not an Israelite. An Israelite makes him a foreigner. Some people would say his name means stranger, which I think is, is interesting. There is a phrase that might help us, Shamgar, the son of Anat, or it looks like in your Bible, Anath, something like that, could maybe either way. Some look at that as kind of a, maybe a military rather than, you know, just as a, of a son of a guy named Anat, actually maybe a military designation. Anat, this A-N-A-T-H, was seen as the, the Canaanite goddess of war. So that could be son of, kind of has this warrior uh, thing to him. Or it could be just stating where he's from, from Beth-Anat, or Beth, it looks like that, Beth-Anat. The problem is that Beth-Anat, that place, is located in actually two places, but it, it seems to be that this, where he's from, would be in the north region of Israel, north and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. If you still have that little map I, I gave at the beginning, you've actually got Shamgar, the ESV study Bible here is thinking he's out Beth, Beth Anat out there west of the Sea of Galilee. That gives you an idea of where he's at. Let's look at that a little bit. Head back to Judges. If you're already there, you're, you're just about there. Go to Judges chapter 1, verse 33. And this gets interesting. Back to Judges 1, 33. You remember here in this chapter, there's a cataloging of the failure of Israel again and again to not drive out completely the inhabitants of the land. Remember that? They, they didn't get them all out. They forced them into labor. And one of those places was, was this Beth Anat. Let me look, look at verse 33 of chapter 1, Judges. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anat. So they lived among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land. That is, the they is Israel, lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. To me, it would seem, and I'm just, it seems like Shamgar, at least working from what we have in the biblical text here, would trace his or origin to Beth Anath. The house of Beth, B-E-T-H, is basically a house. Like Bethlehem is house of bread. It's Beth Anat, house of Anat, maybe this Canaanite goddess. And so perhaps Shamgar 
our focus for today was actually a foreigner, perhaps a Canaanite himself, maybe even, as I'm looking, could he be one of those they put into forced labor? Either way, multiple sources imply Shamgar was not of Israelite origin. A foreigner delivering, delivering Israel. It's fascinating. All right, that's Shamgar, at least a Maybe, okay? How about the Philistines? Who were the Philistines? Question number two. They're known as being part of what's called the Sea Peoples, not the letter C, S-E-A, the Sea Peoples, as in the Aegean Sea. If you're not into geography, that's just fine. It's kind of to the west, kind of to the north. There's a sea. You might have heard of Greece and Turkey and the island of Crete. That's the Aegean Sea, kind of in that region, the Sea Peoples. And at some point, they migrated from there to the land, the promised land, the land of of Canaan. In particular, they seem to be descending from from Noah, from Noah's son Ham, which, by the way, is where the Canaanites come from. And the Bible tells us also the Philistines came from a place called Kaphtor, which, which seems like it's the island of Crete. Remember Titus? Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. It's a big island out in the Mediterranean See, they're thinking maybe that's where the Philistines came from. One other little interesting note. Well, a couple. And such, even what we call, we call Palestine today, kind of comes from this Philistine word. They're similar words, and you could trace back and look at how the, all that fits. But what we call Palestine is, really comes from Philistine. Now, one article I looked at, again, not your biblical reference, the Smithsonian Magazine, um, you don't go there for theology, but it reports even lately, I don't know what year this was, some DNA test- testing they've done in the area, some archaeological finds in the, kind of the southwest of Israel along the coast of the Mediterranean. They're doing some DNA testing on these archaeological finds there, and they're confirming the Philistines came from, from somewhere in southern Europe or the Aegean Sea, like we talked about, Greece, Turkey, Crete, that area. Interesting, the article mentions this. It says, quote, their DNA already, so what they're finding kind of in Israel, you know, this Ashkelon is on the coastline, their DNA already had a mixture of Southern European and local signatures, suggesting that within a few generations, the Philistines were marrying into the local population. Can we not surmise? They were marrying into the local population. These sea peoples marrying. And surmise, who was one of those groups? Perhaps it was Israel whoring after an adultery, not marrying within who Israel was, how God had commanded them, intermixing. Well, back in our text, we just are not told. That's what we've got. We've got Shamgar, we've got Philistines. We're just not told the exact situation. If you turn over to Judges 5, verse 6, this is the only other place where we find Shamgar. And I just want to bring it to your attention. He's mentioned here, this is part of Deborah's, we'll look at in a few weeks actually, Deborah's song of victory. We find here, let me just read the verse to you, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. It alludes to, I think, a time of oppression in the area. So something was going on, we just, but we just have little else to go on. But given all that, let's just move on. We'll keep moving on to our next two questions. Is 
Any one of you kids wondering how you're supposed to draw an ox goad today? What am I supposed to draw? And then how in the world did this guy, Shamgar, kill 600 of the Philistines? So let's first deal with the ox goad. In general, it's a farmer's tool. Maybe you, some of you have one. I don't know. Maybe I'll learn something. But the oxen were used to plow the field, right, for planting. Literally, it was a tool to goad along or to prod the ox as it went. One writer talks about this being like an eight-foot pole. And at some point, six inches, or yeah, six inches in diameter, an eight-foot pole on the one end pointed to get the ox moving, to goad him along. At the other end, there's like a spade or a, or a type of a metal-like chisel-type thing that would, you know, as the, as the plow gets filled with dirt or the, the clods or whatever, well, you got to scrape it off with your ox goad. It'd push him along, scrape him off. It's, it's like the ancient leatherman, you know, or the Swiss Army. I mean, less, less tools, but you got a point in the, in the spade on one end. That's, that's the ox goad. Does this mean Shamgar then? Was, was he a farmer? Maybe? maybe could we make that connection? Maybe he's out plowing his fields and God called him to deliver his people. Maybe he was a warrior, son of Anath, maybe that kind of the warrior-like, and he just found an ox goad from a farmer's field and took it and, and went to go. We don't know. No idea. What is interesting is here a common agricultural tool is used by farmers, drive the oxen, and yet with Shamgar, he proceeds to kill 600 Philistines with it. How do you do that with one tool? How does a guy take one tool and kill 600? Well, let's answer that question by asking a bunch of other questions. So here's the other questions. Our question, question I think it's four, how does Shamgar kill 600 Philistines? Here's the other questions. How did Noah, who had only three sons, build a massive ark? How did Abraham's wife, Sarah, have a child in her old age? How did Joseph rise up to leadership in Egypt? How did Israel escape Pharaoh from Egypt? How did Israel survive in the wilderness? How did they capture Jericho just by marching around a city? How did David kill Goliath? Or how did Daniel escape the lion's den? Or how did his friends escape the fire? So I ask again, how did Shamgar kill 600 Philistines? Head to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23. How did he do it? We know the tool he used. Joshua 23. We'll just just read verses 9 and 10 here. Joshua, he's in his old age. He's speaking to the leadership of Israel. Before he leaves them, he's given instructions to them. He He goes, follow the Lord. Cling to the Lord. And then he recounts this in verses 9 and 10 of Joshua 23. You find it? For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. 
And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as He promised you. Is the same God the same? Is He the same God at work in the time of deliverance for Israel by the hand of Shamgar and his ox goad? The Lord fought for him. The Lord is the true deliverer of Israel. So our question is, did the tool matter? Well, he used it. That's what he used. Did it it really matter? I mean, if the Lord is fighting for you, could Shamgar have used a brick? I think so. Or or a a pencil or a stick or, or, as Samson will do, a donkey jawbone. We're going to see later on in Judges. What matters is that the Lord is the one fighting to graciously deliver His people via a foreigner named Shamgar. Our New Testament says this in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Or a little bit further in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our God, whose love for His people is magnificent and long-suffering, will not allow us to be separated from Him. And we see it here that God's power in the hand of His servant can take on 600 or more. So one last question then as you head back to Judges 3, verse 31. One last question of the text What's not here? What's absent? And why is that significant? We just come back. Come back to the fact we've got an entire account of a judge in one verse. And yet at the same time, so many details that we've looked at, those cycles, they're absent. The corruption, the consequence that we've looked at, uh, absent. The crying out to the Lord, absent. There is deliverance here, but then we're not even told what happened to Shamgar. We're not, when did he die or how many years? All these sorts of things. You could say Shamgar was a judge and somehow in the time of Ehud, he's kind of squeezed into the broader account here. You know, he's just kind of like, a thro- like, oh yeah, you know, he's writing judges and oh, there's Shamgar and here's a sentence on Shamgar. I got enough space in my parchment, whatever, you know, to write that in. But I think something more significant is, is on the surface maybe missing from the text. On the surface, the account seems rather godless. If you just had this sentence, it seems that way unless we step back and consider something. Perhaps, and I'm just, I'm just perhaps, did the author of Judges intend to be brief? Was this his point to be really short? I tend to think it was his plan in order to make us pause and consider, why is this show so short? What's behind this account? God's not even mentioned here. If you compare this to a movie, it would seem like what you've got here is something akin to, I had to ask George about this and think about movies, to a really good movie. There's, you know, there's really good ones and then there's they're just not so well made, and we're not going to get into titles, what you know, and well, I thought that was well, you know, but there's some that are just they're really good, some that aren't. What's the difference in them? 
I'm told, and I believe it, films that must use a lot of dialogue, a lot of talking to tell the story are actually less intriguing than those that kind of leave you hanging or those that use the actors and the, the sounds and the sight to tell the story for you, that you kind of you come along. They don't have to tell you everything that's happening. You see it, and it weaves and moves in that. Perhaps that's the case with verse 31 here. It doesn't have all the detail of Ehud and all that detail that we looked at last week. Maybe the author thought we needed a break from that. I don't know. Because there's enough detail with an ox code. We can kind of fill it in with our minds. But I think the brevity makes it stand out. It's so short and it's also so silent. Which can make you think, possibly, maybe you think of another book. The book of Esther. The book of Esther in some ways is, is very similar. It's a story. On the surface, there's no mention of God throughout the book. And yet, here's what the ESV notes going into Esther. Here's an intro to Esther. While God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, there are many hints of His presence. There are no signs and wonders, no special revelations, no prophet like Moses. No one even mentions God. Yet the way the story is told makes it clear that even when God is most hidden, He is still present and working to protect and deliver His chosen people. The God of Israel, their Lord, in this brief and yet in the silence magnified, He is the one who delivered His people via a foreigner and an ox goad. Which leads then to two, two questions in application. Two questions as we apply this in our lives. One, you may not own an ox goat. I don't think it's to go out and find one and buy an ox goat. But the question is, what tools, what gifts, as insignificant as they look like, what tools has God entrusted to you for the sake of His purposes for the kingdom and for His glory? What tools are in your field or in your house or in your makeup of who He's made you to be? You may own a truck and a trailer and you use it for God's glory. You might only have two quarters that you just put in the offering or you gave to a missionary to support God's kingdom in another land. You might buy a Pepsi for someone just because they need some encouragement at night. A mighty God uses ordinary means. Here's what Matthew Henry comments on this passage, he points out a couple things. He says, one, that God can make those eminently serviceable to His glory and His church's good whose extraction, that's an old word for meaning their lineage, their lineage, their education, employment are very mean, not mean-like, but just they're very little, they're very obscure in their education, who they are. God can use them. He says, He that has the residue of the Spirit could, when He pleased, make plowmen Judges and generals, and fishermen, apostles. And then he says, number two, it's no matter how weak the weapon is, if God direct and strengthen the arm. An ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. And sometimes he chooses to work by such unlikely means 
that the excellency of the power may appear to be of God. God's grace and power. Come in the mundane, the ox goads, seemingly insignificant events even of our lives. If you're like me, maybe we're looking, looking for mass revivals, huge outpourings of God's hands, and it's okay to look for that and pray for that, but in the meantime, we might miss the work that God is doing all around us and through us. It's through Pepsis and through trailers or through two quarters. And so secondly, being tied to the first, what, what tools has God given you Secondly, what kind of God do we worship who takes what looks to be insignificant and He uses it for His good and glorious purposes? What kind of God is this? As we approach the Easter season, how insignificant and weak God's kingdom must have looked. Remember on that Friday there in Palestine, the supposed Savior and King, His hands nailed and his feet nailed to a cross, being scorned by men and therefore dying on that Roman cross, looks kind of weak. And yet the God of ox goads and lefties and old men like Othniel is a God who was forsaken on the cross and yet was raised to life. And he conquered sin and death. And he gave eternal life to all who would look on the Son. Shamgar's story is not unique. All throughout Scripture, and even leading to the cross of Christ, God demonstrates the might of His power to deliver and save. I'll close with how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 20 through 25. It says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the stories of a guy like Shamgar. that remind us of Your work to save a people who did not deserve Your mercy. Your work in the lives of people that when we are weak, Your power is made strong. And that You use the tools that You've given us to serve You. The varied gifts that are in the hearing of, this, of my voice today. Everyone with different gifts, different tools to use for the kingdom. Some quite ordinary like a small bottle of Pepsi Lord may you use us may we see your hand in these different areas of life may we be instruments in your hands to proclaim you to a lost world to encourage one another to be in awe of a God who would use a foreigner and an ox goat to accomplish your purposes. And we see your hand in our lives and give you glory for it. In Jesus' name.
our powerful deliverer. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.